Welcome to the first trial episode of the Double Aspect Pod. I'm Leonid Sirota, and I'm here with Mark Mancini, and we are trying an experiment by adding an audio component to a blog that has been running for uh, more, more than 10 years uh, in its original iteration with me as sole author and for quite a few years with Mark as co-author as well. We thought this would be an interesting thing to try, so here you are. Welcome. How are you doing, Mark? I'm good, uh, Leonid. How are you today? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm looking forward to this experiment. Well, it's very so, it's very exciting, uh, especially given the time you've been running the blog, and it's uh, I think it's a good extension of uh, what goes on on the blog. Well, we'll see about we'll that. We'll see, I guess. And we'll uh, <laughs> invite our listeners, if there will be any, to tell us what they think about it. We are looking forward to your comments and feedback. So we have three topics that we wanted to cover today. One is going to be in the weeds of judicial review of administrative law. Is going to be the interface between merits review and procedure review and trying to tease out where the courts draw the line between the two. Then we wanted to talk about a post that we wrote together last week. And it's an interesting uh, topic for the post. Uh, I don't know how the post itself was, but it dealt with an interesting case that appeals both to uh, our joint, but especially your interest in statutory interpretation on the one hand, but also our joint and perhaps especially my interest in uh, constitutional issues and uh, around freedom of expression and election law in particular. And then we are going to have uh, our, as our last subject a discussion about uh, the very serious subjects of uh, medical assistance in dying, assisted suicide, and the uh, abuses that have been documented in this regard in Canada over the last several weeks has been a big topic of conversation, and we wanted to add our own perspectives to this. So. Uh, why don't you start us off, Mark, with uh, the administrative law subject? And you, you, uh, in case listeners don't know, uh, Mark has a fantastic newsletter called the, the Sunday Evening Administrative Review, in which he tells readers about uh, recent administrative law cases decided by Canadian courts. And so this is a subject that you've been dealing with it seems like quite a lot over the last couple of months, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, so that uh, sounded like a, an interesting topic for us to discuss. So why don't you start us off by telling us about some of those cases? Sure. Well, yes, as you said, this is a, an issue that uh, for one reason or another in the last number of months has uh, come to the surface. And the real issue is uh, how we decide or how we make the distinction between procedure and substance in the law of judicial review. Well, why does this matter? 
Well, for standard overview purposes, we have on one hand, um, matter of substance or matters going to the quote unquote merits are now presumptively reviewed for reasonableness review. So we have uh, a deferential standard. And then in the orthodox position, the on issues of procedure, typically courts have reviewed those issues uh, for correctness or have otherwise said that uh, no standard of review applies, but it is the court's uh, de novo opinion of the uh, the fairness that uh, that matters on judicial review. So the this was a fairly, I think, accepted distinction. Uh, but in recent years and in, in recent months, things have become more complicated. And I think it's become more complicated because of Vavilov and uh, what's come after Vavilov. So we recently had a case, uh, Abravets, at the Supreme Court of Canada, where uh, the court decided that when an issue of procedure falls in a right of appeal, the appellate standards of review apply. And for that reason, we could say that uh, that's a holding from Vavilov. We can say that Vavilov has now affected the law of procedural fairness. In other cases, maybe, we, after- maybe Mark, uh, maybe we need to to back up and and just thinking. Of course, uh, presumably, quite a few of our listeners will be very familiar with Vavilov, but just in case. Yes. We have some who are not. Perhaps we have some some new students uh, who will be joining us. So why don't you give us a, a 30 second uh, review of what Favilov does and why this uh, appellate standards of review issue is significant? Yes, that's that's a good idea. So, uh, you know, Favilov was sort of the rejigging of the entire law of judicial review uh, in Canada. So we now have uh, on Presumably all issues, we have a presumptive standard of reasonableness, of deference. So uh, courts will defer to administrative decisions presumptively. They will only derogate from that presumption of reasonableness review uh, where the rule of law requires it, not uh, at issue per se here at this point. And they'll also derogate from that presumption where the, there's a contrary indication of legislative intent. So uh which the court has said is a statutory right of appeal. When a statute provides a right of appeal to a court from uh, the decision of an administrator, uh, the court in Vavilov says, well, there the presumption of reasonableness is rebutted because it's a legislative indication that the appellate standards of review will apply. Those standards call for uh, judicial review on questions of law on a correctness standard. So the administrator has to get it right. And uh, on questions of fact and uh, mixed fact in law, we have a more deferential standard of palpable and overriding error. So that's how Vavilov figures into this uh, issue, especially on the issue on the point of the right of appeal. Um, but as we extrapolate out from that and into the issue of merits and procedure, what has happened is uh, now that there's this point about statutory rights of appeal applying to issues of procedural fairness. It raises the question of what else from Vavilov should perhaps apply to the law of procedural fairness as well, and whether or not the presumption of reasonableness review applies to both issues of substance and fairness. And I think the issue that we want to talk about today and we get into is uh, whether this distinction matters, uh, if so, why it matters, and uh, whether we lose anything by subsuming procedural fairness issues into just the general Vavilov framework for judicial uh, judicial review. We can certainly talk about some of these cases uh, that have have struggled with this in the last few weeks and months. 
Yeah, so why don't you just very briefly give us give us a couple of examples to to give us a bit more context? Sure. Sure. Well, one case that uh, I profiled in the newsletter uh, a few weeks ago, a month ago now, is uh, a Walker versus Alberta. Uh, this is just a standard sort of election dispute uh, where an individual contributed eight hundred dollars over a statutory uh, contribution limit that's uh, for, for elections and was uh, levied an administrative penalty. Um, and the question was whether or not uh, whether or not uh, in making this decision and making this penalty, the office of the election commissioner fettered uh, his or her discretion. Now, typically issues of uh, fettering of discretion has been described maybe somewhat in a confusing way in the jurisprudence as an issue of procedural fairness. And so typically we would think the standard of review for that issue is correctness. Um, but in this case, uh, the court uh, does go into a bit of detail about why an issue of fettering may actually be uh, one that would one going to the merits that a reasonableness standard would be appropriate for. Now, on the actual merits of the case in Walker, the court ultimately decides that the correctness position is uh, the correct one, no pun intended. But the the explanation and the the discussion of the issue of fettering and whether or not it's substance, whether or not it's procedure and why that matters, I think uh, points to a bit of a fault line in, in the way that in the difference between merits and fairness. Uh, I'll just say one more case that's uh, not as recent, but which uh, I think is uh, kind of proof positive of this issue. And that was the Delta Airlines case. So this was a case uh, 2018, so pre-Babylon. And in that case, we had a, an issue where uh, the Canada Transport Agency was interpreting its statutory power to grant standing. And so we might think that uh, standing is an issue, a procedural issue, an issue on which the uh, tribunal would typically be considered master over uh, and have room to maneuver. Uh, but here we don't um, we don't actually see the court apply a correctness standard. We don't actually see the court uh, review the, the agency's test for standing de novo. We we just see them frame it as an issue of statutory interpretation and one that is amenable to uh, to, amenable to review under reasonableness, under a broad church reasonableness standard. So those are just some of the, the cases. And, I, you know, many people have written about this uh, pre-Vavilov, and I, I expect post-Vavilov we'll, we'll see more of this. And I know you have uh, strong opinions on this too, Leonid. Yes, well, so my, my opinions are um, in, in the context of, of a broader discomfort with differential uh, review on questions of of law and questions of legality and so to my mind what a, a conflation of uh, procedural fairness and merits review one of the things it does is it further erodes the already tenuous ability of the courts to keep the tabs on administrative decision makers so that's that's one part of the problem, and as I see it, another part of the problem is that I think we are losing out on clarity of thinking. Now, this this might be a question of temperament and disposition, but in general, Canadian administrative law, as compared to administrative law as it is uh, 
thought about in the UK or let's say in New Zealand, uh, which are two jurisdictions I'm familiar with because I've, I used to teach in New Zealand and uh, I'm now teaching in the UK. Canadian administrative law tends to blow up and mix together all sorts of categories. So we don't distinguish what in other jurisdictions are distinguished as illegality review on the one hand, compliance with the, the, the limits that statute imposes on an agency and rationality review, which is more about the review of policy making or discretionary decision making. In Canada, we just call both of these merits review. And within the chapter of illegality, if you study administrative law in the UK or in New Zealand, you will discover more categories like illegality in a strict sense, the uh, taking into account of irrelevant considerations, fed, uh, failure to take mandatory considerations into account, uh, and so on. So there is just a way of thinking about judicial review that is um, that offers you more more categories and more indications of what might be going wrong in administrative decision making that you need to watch out for. In Canada, we don't do that. And we just say, well, merits review and, and, and this is it. And we don't distinguish questions of legality and reasonableness. We don't distinguish different categories of legality. Now, if we, the one distinction that we used to keep is that between procedural fairness and merits. And I think it's helpful to just, again, clarity of thinking. But I recognize that this is not uh, a university held view and it's probably not, not your view. I think this is an interesting question because we we come at this from different perspectives, but we may uh, end up at a very similar place. So let me just uh, I, I think you outlined two points about the distinction, the one between one pertaining to legality and one pertaining to uh, categories and and simplify. And I think uh, the effect of those categories mean to simplify or guide the law of judicial review on the on the point of legality. I. I I think this is perhaps where there is a difference because, um, in my view at least, there is nothing special about procedural issues in comparison to merits issues. And just by that, I mean, while I think uh, recognizing, as I'll say, recognizing that an issue is one of procedural, uh, involves procedural rights, uh, is important. We have to make that recognition. There's nothing special from a standard of review perspective about procedure versus substance. And I think as long as we get uh, what sorts of things are, what sorts of things should happen on reasonableness review, right, which I, I think they do in Vavilov to a general a general level, then I think the distinction between reasonableness and correctness review matters less. And I think it, it in this case, it really does matter less because uh, we don't ever really, even on issues of procedural fairness, uh, there's there's a bit of deference built in. There's a bit of deference built into the Baker uh, test, which governs the content of the duty of fairness. Uh, we we know that their courts are typically cognizant of respecting choice of procedure and these sorts of things. And so whether or not correctness with a bit of deference or Vavilovian reasonableness, uh, which of those best respects the principle of legality, I think is I, I'm not I don't think it matters that much. I don't think um, we're going to lose out too much. 
And then I just I think on the second point of the categories, um, I, too, am a supporter of categorical thinking, at least to some degree. Um, but I think for me, the most important thing, and this is just a matter of doctrinal construction, the most important thing in the law of judicial review is simplification. And um, this is another, this is a bit of a meta debate on top of this one, because uh, we can think of the law of judicial review as trying to uh, attach uh, or respond to the diversity of administrative decision making. And I know you've written about this. Um, or we could see the law of judicial review as being a set of workable tools that apply across the massive decision makers. And that's what I tend to think of when I think of the law of judicial review. So if we can somehow um, simplify the categories and simplify what it means to conduct reasonableness review without having to distinguish between all these, uh, distinguish between different types of questions, I, I think in general that, that's a good thing. And it's a good thing for litigants because the litigants are the ones who are up against the government's power in the law of judicial review. They have to challenge administrative uh, action. And in Canada, uh, they've had a rough go because of how complicated and uh, unworkable our law of judicial review has been. Just one last point, um, which I think is important, and that's, um, and this may support your point of view, actually, but in Vavilov, uh, we do get this, as I said, this broad church reasonableness review, but as it's being applied, we're seeing these categories start to form now. So we're starting to see on issues of statutory interpretation, less of a margin of appreciation given to decision makers, something approximating uh, correctness review. And then on issues of evidence, uh, on issues of facts, on other sorts of things, we see courts taking a more hands-off approach. So these categories are forming, and perhaps it's inevitable that they will, within the reasonableness standard. But I still think the uh, the purpose of Vavilov and the, the goal of it was to simplify, and I think that's uh, that's the spirit that I would like to see applied to the rest of, to other issues in uh, Canada's law of judicial review. The the point about trying to make the litigant's life easier is, uh, is a really interesting and important one. I'm not entirely sure which way it cuts, because it could be that having those categories available to guide your thinking as well as the thinking of your judge, I'm not sure that that might not actually help litigants, but now we're talking through our hats here, and perhaps this is a, a sign that we might want to be moving on. But the point, I think, is, is really worth uh, thinking about. Uh, before we leave, I'll, I'll throw maybe a bit of a, an unorthodox idea here. So to come back to Vavilov, as, as you reminded us, Mark, one idea that we get from uh, the majority reasons there is that the rule of law imposes a hard limit on uh, judicial deference to administrative decision making, and the rule of law must be preserved and maintained by the judiciary. Now, in the uh, jurisprudence of the Supreme Court, the procedural aspects of the rule of law, I think it's fair to say, have never really been uh, discussed much, but they are an important feature of some accounts of the rule of law, in uh, particular that of Professor Jeremy Waldron, but to perhaps a lesser extent that of uh, the late Joseph Raz as well. And so from a theoretical perspective, this might be something to think about for the future. Although, again, from a, a positive law perspective, I think that would not be at present a, a viable argument to, to make to Canadian courts. Another thought that comes to mind, again, in relation to Vavilov, 
is that there is a passage which I'm not sure has really been explored or exploited so far, but there is this idea that we have to be especially vigilant on judicial review when very important interests of the person who is affected by the decision are at stake. And I think that if I remember the the Vavilov majority reasons correctly, the examples that are given there are primarily in substantive terms. It might be things like, are you going to be deported from Canada? Is your livelihood at stake? Is your freedom at stake? But I wonder if procedural rights, at least in, in some instances, might also be part of this especially important category that calls for particular vigilance on judicial review, even if we are going to describe the the standard of review as quote-unquote reasonableness. Well, yeah, I think just to to leave it off, to to tie up that there, I think those are very important points. In Abermetz, uh, Justice Cote, she didn't, uh, she she had a a separate opinion by herself, but she didn't uh, phrase it in rule of law terms, I think, but she did say that where uh, the, the reason we have a correctness review on procedural fairness issues is because we want to ensure that whatever substantive decisions are coming out of the process are guaranteed by some judicial or is, is sort of warranted by a judicial guarantee that the procedure is sound. And we could kind of conceive of that, I think, in rule of law terms as a systemic rule of law factor. And so, we, you know, I think there are there's at least one judge on the court that's interested in that kind of thinking. And I think on the the issues of uh, vulnerability and important interests, it's a uh, it's a paragraph or two in Vavilov that hasn't got the attention that I think it should. Although in some cases it has been deployed to raise the stakes uh, for a decision maker to justify their a decision. So I think that's good. But and we haven't quite seen it move into issues of procedure yet. But it's not uh, impossible. I think that we could conceive of that happening. Or even though the law right now is probably not headed in that direction. All right. Well, I think that that wraps it up for uh, the first subject we we wanted to discuss today. So why don't we move on to a case from the Quebec Court of Appeal decided a couple of weeks ago. The case is called Terrien and the Directeur General des Elections du Québec. The case is from actually the 2014 electoral campaign, which is an interesting fact, 2014 election campaign in Quebec, uh, two, eight years ago, two elections ago now, because there's going to, there's about to be a new election. The fact, the party that is now in government, wasn't at the time, had taken out some adverts on Facebook, which was just be- beginning, I guess, to be a major factor in political advertising in the first week of the election campaign. And they were charged by the chief electoral officer with violating Section 429 of the Quebec Elections Act, which says uh, that in the first week after an election campaign begins, no person except the chief electoral officer himself may broadcast or cause to be broadcast by a radio or television station or by a cable distribution enterprise publish or cause to be published in a newspaper or other periodical, or post or cause to be posted in a space leased for that purpose, publicity relating to the election. 
the FIFO actual officer has said, well, you guys have been leasing a space to advertise your party. And the CAC said, no, we are we're not leasing a space within the meaning of this provision. Court of Appeal says, yes, they have. And that raises, of course, the, the question of whether in this provision, which I've just read, which, as you can tell by its language and its, its detailed reference to, to newspapers and to radio and television and cable, but no mention of the Internet, it's a very old provision. It was drafted in 1995. So does the language of leasing a space as it was enacted in 1995 and is still in force, does it encompass taking out adverts on social media networks? So, Mark, I think you, you should start us off with the, the statutory interpretation angle on this, and, and then perhaps we'll turn to the election law on this to it. Yes, it's uh well I just uh I'm not much of an election law uh person myself but when uh you raised this case to me Leonid I just couldn't resist it's such a uh it presents such a classic problem I think in statutory interpretation. And the classic problem is, is basically the court itself has said. Yes, right. And and I think you know the classic problem is this. Who updates the statute? We recognize uh, I think you recognize in the, in your introduction to this that uh, the statute's out of date. I think everyone agrees on that. Uh, and perhaps even, you know, it's poorly worded, it's poorly drafted. Uh, and so the question that I think confronts the court here is, is uh, again, who develops or who updates this statute? Now, our law kind of already answers this question in at least a broad way, because it says, and, and this is uncontroversial in statutory interpretation, that the original meaning of uh, a statute's terms is the meaning that must be applied when a court interprets the statute. So, in other words, the statute is given the meaning that it had at the time of the enactment. The language can be general or narrow, and so sometimes we might see that the uh, if the language is general, we might see an evolutionary approach where the original meaning of a term can apply to new phenomena, new phenomena that weren't wasn't in the contemplation of the original legislature. But the definition of the term, its original meaning, must remain constant. And so the issue then is whether or not uh, the text of this particular statute, its original meaning encompassed virtual posting in a virtual space uh, rather than physical in a physical space. The problem, I think, here, though, is that the court doesn't really take seriously the original meaning of the term. They kind of reason backwards. And so it, it, the court says, because the terms in the statute, uh, the terms post and space, because those terms do not uh, reject out of hand the application to virtual a virtual dimension, there's no reason not to apply the statute to the virtual dimension. But this isn't the way, uh, I mean, this is, I think you agree with this, Lena, this is completely backwards. Uh, we don't ask, why can't a term apply? We ask, does it apply? And here there's really no argument that the virtual reality or internet was in the contemplation of the legislature at the time. But more importantly, it doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem to be appropriate or um, available on the terms of the statute itself. And so here I think we see the problem, which is that it's a it's an error to say that uh, statutory terms should be developed according to a living tree methodology. That is not our law. And. The problem really, and we can talk about this, but the problems uh, kind of mount when a court wants to update the statute 
but it does so in a way that will implicate uh, resources, in a way that will implicate uh, the rest of the way that the law works. The court's not in a position to do this. So I think I made two points there. I think one is just that um, original meaning applies, but there are real risks to updating a statute when a court does it in the context of a statutory case. Of course, of course, I agree with that. We, we wrote on uh, on this case together. I would add that in, in this case, it's probably not an, uh, an issue of resources, but there is a, a concern that really doesn't seem to be, the court doesn't seem to be engaging with. Uh, so there, there's a number of, of constitutional concerns, and, and we haven't mentioned this so far, but I think both of us have at least some doubt, uh, perhaps fairly strong doubt, at least at least for me, as to whether this provision is constitutional in the first place, but, but it wasn't challenged as unconstitutional, so we put that aside. But nonetheless, there are constitutional concerns in the way in which the court expands its applicabilities. On the one hand, when an authority like the chief electoral officer charges the uh, or someone with with an offense, even though, of course, it's a regulatory offense, nobody's going to prison for it, but nonetheless, it's a charge. Uh, and and you would think that it's for the authority to prove that the provision under which the charge is being brought applies. It's not the other way around. And this, as you have said, Mark, I think what, what happens in this case is that the court in a way, reverses the burden which should fall on the on the electoral officer to demonstrate the applicability of the provision. The court reverses that and says, "Well, why why would you?" Uh, this is even worse because it's not just any old offense, but it's it's an offense that limit limits speech on matters of grave public concern, and electoral speech is at the heart as we normally think of it, at the heart of the protection of the freedom of expression. So that's an additional reason to be vigilant before expanding the scope of an offense by means of this living tree statutory interpretation. And I think this brings us to the, the broader context of this of this case and this discussion, which is that the, the, the court wants to, I think, it's quite clear that the court wants to expand the scope of the statute. It is concerned that the internet is, as it were, a loophole, and this an area sort of wild west, and it escapes the well-intentioned controls that are imposed on electoral speech in the province of Quebec. Do you, do you agree with that? Is that a, a fair characterization? I think so. I think. Um... I, it's, it's, I think it's a fair characterization of the, of the broader context of this. And I, I think if I can just go back to one point, uh, and I think it may connect to this, and it's about legality. The idea that the burden of proof has to, is reversed here means that the law, there's no reason why the law can't expand. And again, this isn't the way that we apply statutes, and it could lead to a lot of unintended consequences. So again, rather than saying, why does this law apply? Rather than forcing the elections commissioner to describe and explain why his, the conduct here is captured by the statute, uh, we're just asking why it can't be. And that leads to terms and statutes taking a very expansive, growing approach to new phenomena that uh, 
again, will affect the broader context and raise the constitutional concerns that I think you're concerned with. And it's an interesting link, I think, between how different methods of statutory interpretation can have constitutional consequences depending on the direction in which it's taken. Yes, yes, I think that's, um, I like, I haven't really been thinking about that until now, but yes, I, I think it probably is worth thinking about. So so to now turn to this, the, the broader context of election law in Quebec, the Supreme Court's first big election law case in, in the charter era was case called Libman, and it rose out of uh, the rules that were in place in Quebec uh, during the, the 1995 separation referendum, memory serves well. And those rules effectively prohibited anyone from campaigning except within the, the strictures of the two uh, officially recognized committees for the yes and the no. The Supreme Court said you can't prevent people from speaking out on political issues. The Quebec legislature said, oh, you're telling us what to do? All right, we'll comply, but in the most minimalistic way possible. And what they did was they enacted uh, a law that says that anyone who is not so changing that to the election campaign from a referendum campaign, anyone who is not a party or a candidate can spend a grand total of $300 on their campaign. And that, that amount has not been adjusted for inflation, although it was not exactly a substantial, substantial amount, even back in 1997, um, let alone now. Uh, so that that is the, the basic position. And then the, the kinds of speech that are restricted are uh, all sorts of communications on political subjects, including things that under federal law, for example, would be perfectly fine. So there was one case in 2010 when trade union criticized in a sort of newsletter, I think, that they distributed to their own members. They criticized the party that was campaigning against unions. And they were charged with violating the Quebec Election Act. They said, well, it's unconstitutional because it doesn't comply with what the Supreme Court has said in uh, in Libman and in a subsequent case called Harper. And they lost at the Quebec Court of Appeal. Under federal law, what they did would have been perfectly fine, even though federal law also imposes fairly strict uh, limitations on political communications during election campaigns. But it makes an exception for when a union or an organization, a corporation, wants to speak to its members or its shareholders. And that kind of makes sense. And yet, uh, so the Quebec statute doesn't do that. And that's just one example. Again, $300 amount is another one. The, the point is that Quebec has a, this very restrictive approach. The Quebec Court of Appeals seems to be very much on board with it. And generally speaking, I think the authorities in Quebec, if anything, are interested in restricting electoral speech even more. This leads to problems, not just with political parties, as, as in this case, but also with NGOs, because they think that they have things to say, and they think that election campaigns are good occasions for saying them. But they regularly get into trouble with the chief electoral officer. And then when it's in when it's NGOs, and we explain more in post, uh, so we probably shouldn't go into too much detail right now, 
But when it's NGOs, and I've blogged about this a number of times, the, the chief electoral officer tends to buckle under public pressure because people hear that NGOs are being prevented from speaking out on matters of public concern and they don't like it very much. The chief electoral officer finds very creative interpretations of the election law and then they, uh, they get away with it. Now it's a political party, so nobody has that much sympathy for them. So they, they don't get away with it. To my mind, this, uh, this brings us back to this question of well, who updates the law. Right now, it sounds like the Quebec Court of Appeal on the one hand and the chief electoral officer on the other, they think that they're the ones who should be revising and updating the law. But the problem is that when they do it, they, they do it in ways that are, for one thing, ad hoc. Uh, that are unpredictable and you never know what's going to happen next. And some of the NGOs are actually complaining about that. Uh, the other problem is that you might at least suspect that there is some favoritism going on, that some parties are, uh, I, I, don't, I don't mean political parties, but some kinds of, of actors are treated more leniently than others. And uh, to my mind, what this means is that there has to be legislative intervention. Again, who should amend legislation, who should update legislation, who should change it to bring it back into step with the needs of a contemporary society where the internet is a big deal in a way that was unimaginable in the 90s. It should be the legislature. Well, full, full agreement on, uh, on my end. And I think that the, I think as we pointed out in the post, the effect of these restrictions and the uh, the way that the, the legal landscape has played out is that Quebec will be people in Quebec will be hit particularly hard between the federal and the provincial restrictions that are in place here and then of course I think we po- pointed out in the post too in Ontario they've used the notwithstanding clause to extend their law in this regard and so um, it, these are very concerning trends I would think about uh, censorship in political campaigns and and it's it's really a an issue that on which the legislature should it want to update the law to capture the virtual space, which is a very complicated business. The legislature, with its means of study and um, its supposed expertise, should have the ability or or want to address the problem. But it doesn't. So far, I, I gather the National Assembly hasn't taken up the issue, and it's it's a shame because it really is not. It's really a, an issue on which the court doesn't have the ability or the legitimacy, I'd say, to to update uh, this kind of a statute. So, so, so far, and the, the Quebec chief electoral officer has been calling for updates, not on the kinds of issues that we have been discussing here. He wants to do what Ontario has done and what the federal parliament has done to a much lesser extent, but nonetheless, uh, which is to extend, as you mentioned, Mark, the, the regulation of uh, what used to be the regulation of electoral campaigns into an ever longer period before the campaign even starts. And that's that's a whole other topic, and perhaps we'll, we'll come back to it in future episodes if, if we ever do future episodes. But that's the that was the proposal that the Quebec chief electoral officer put on the table, and the Premier, François Legault, has shot it down recently. He said, well... It's working out very well for us. It used to be working out well for the liberals when they were in power. Now it's working well for us. 
and we don't see any reason to change. So he, he really said the quiet part out loud. I can only hope that some judges will take note of the fact, and this, this is not a dig specifically at Mr. Legault. Uh, I have had nasty things to say about him on other occasions. But in this respect, he's just like every other politician, and not just in Canada, but pretty much everywhere. Election law is an area where self-interest is is always very near to the surface. Of course, politicians like everyone else, like me, they, they want to keep their jobs. And they are in danger of losing their jobs on a regular basis. That's good for the voters, it's less good for them. And so they they are very happy to arrange the rules in ways that suit them or to keep the rules that suit them. And this is something that courts need to, to be cognizant of when they engage in review of uh, legislation that deals with uh, these issues. And sometimes courts have been quite deferential to the choices of legislature, uh, legislators in this regard. They shouldn't be. I think that's a uh, I'll just say maybe one more thing and then we can move on to our final final topic. And I, I think it's uh, it's not a, uh, your comments aren't to dig at Mr. Legault, but I, I certainly think uh, and this is speaking for my part, it is a dig towards the, in, the incentives of the politicians in this realm. And in, in this realm, as you say, the politicians will look out for themselves. And what it means is that the role of the court becomes much more important or, or maybe much much more obvious in this kind of case because the it, the bounds of the law are liable to be manipulated by administrators or politicians when the incentives are such as they are. And so the court's job in interpreting these statutes is, is really very important. As I mentioned, it has constitutional consequences. It's a tough area, but I think here we just think doesn't the court didn't get it right and it will lead to more more unfortunate problems down the road. So the court was trying to to do the the right thing, was trying to make things better by its lines, but it's not the institution with the authority to do that. Exactly. It shouldn't have been. All right. So on to our final topic, which is medical assistance in dying. As listeners will know, surely, uh, back in 2015, so it's seven years now, the Supreme Court said that, at least in some cases, in a fairly narrow category of cases, but in some cases, it's unconstitutional to prevent people from seeking the assistance of a physician to end their lives. And uh, Arthur dealt with cases of people who uh, whose death was was imminent or at least reasonably foreseeable, and who had were in uh, enormous uh, physical suffering often mental anguish as a result of the physical suffering. And there was the evidence that, that weighed on, on the court's mind that many people were actually choosing to kill themselves earlier than they might have sought physician-assisted suicide because of the nature of their illness, which was such that at some point they would not be physically able to do it themselves. They were also doing it in, in ways that were just physically painful more than uh, perhaps would have been the case if uh, they had received the assistance of a physician. And so those things the court found were constitutional violations. Parliament eventually enacted the necessary legislation to respond to this judgment and legalized physician-assisted suicide. Later, there was another judgment, this one not by the Supreme Court, 
but simply by a court of first instance in Quebec, which said that the precise the lines that Parliament had drawn around where who would be entitled to seek physician assistance in uh, dying, those lines were too restrictive, according to this, the Superior Court of Quebec. The government didn't appeal that decision, and instead they introduced new legislation, which was called Bill, Bill C-7 at the time, which expanded the availability of, of assisted suicide. So that's, the, that's the background. and. But recently, so the, the hope when the Carter case was decided was that we uh, can legislate with sufficient care and enacting sufficient guardrails and restrictions that the availability of assisted suicide will not be abused. It will not lead to people who are not very grievously ill and suffering and irremediably suffering getting access. It will not lead to people being pressured into seeking assisted suicide, which I think we can all agree is a horrifying perspective. And in the recent weeks, it appears uh, that those expectations have not been working out. That's that's right. I think um, I'll highlight one story because I think uh, it's important to have a grounding in something that's happened quite recently. And this this story received a lot of uh, attention. It's not the only one, but it's one that I think has captured a lot of people's attention. Uh, this was a story of a Canadian veteran who was supposedly told or advised to seek medical assistance in dying when he hadn't asked for that advice. Now, this revelation, it's uh, the Veteran Affairs Minister and uh, Veteran Affairs Canada, they've launched an investigation um, you can, as you said, Leonid, this is just really, really uh, horrifying in in a lot of ways. And it, I think it's it's raised a lot of questions from people who don't support the idea of medical assistance in dying about whether or not uh, this sort of result is inevitable. But it's also raised questions, I think, among people um, like me who uh, support the concept of medical assistance in dying, and, but wonder what we can do about the about ensuring that there are actual safeguards to prevent these sorts of horrifying things from happening. In other words, is this a, I think one topic that we can discuss is whether or not these stories and these, uh, these horror stories, frankly, do they indict the idea of medical assistance in dying in Canada, or do they indict the way that it's been implemented and perhaps the, the, the healthcare system itself, which might, because it lacks resources to care for people, may actually prematurely push push individuals towards the medical assistance and dying path when they otherwise wouldn't have gone there? I think that these are some of the main questions that are raised by some of these stories. Well, we can start with that. I think I, I might have some some other comments as well. But why why don't we start with this uh, the healthcare system issue? And this is something that uh, that I think you you have very strongly held views, which I, I largely share. But why why don't you? Yeah, I think some of the the issue, or at least part of the issue here, it's hard to know how much of it it is, but I think part of the issue here and some of the other stories that have come out about medical assistance in dying um, have come out in the light of a member, a staff member, or somebody in a position of authority in the in the healthcare system. I believe there's one, at least one story like this, encouraging somebody to seek medical assistance in dying because the the hospital or the care center simply didn't have the resources to keep them, or the, the cost to keep them in a particular location would be prohibitive or high. And and this point was brought up to the individual 
who was then encouraged to seek medical assistance in dying. This is just one story, and we, we don't have a scale or a scope of how often this happens or if it even happens more than once. But the fact that it happened once is shocking. And I think it's shocking because it, it ties together the, the problems that we have with capacity in our healthcare system with the idea of medical assistance in dying. So the idea I think here is that if we don't have the capacity to care for people, which, you know, as a matter of state, they're entitled to this sort of this care under uh, state health care. If they can't, if we can't care for them, then we have another service to provide, and that's medical assistance in dying. And so we see the the fact that if we don't have the capacity to act to care for people, the bureaucratic impulse seems to be to push them to medical assistance in dying, at least in this case. And that I and so I think that's, that this is just one angle to look at how our problems with capacity, because we have a, a public health care system, now create other issues in terms of caring for people that have debilitating conditions at the end of life. And this wasn't an issue that was canvassed, as far as I remember, in Carter. There wasn't an issue about capacity, and perhaps that's perhaps that's not a constitutional concern. But at the same time, we're divide. You know, when the court in Carter knows what it's doing, and it's it is striking down a prohibition on medical assistance in dying. And one has to wonder, as the government was responding to Carter, whether concerns about capacity in healthcare came up and whether or not or, or whether this is just something that we're discovering now for the first time as our system begins to reveal its uh, its cracks and its problems. I, I wonder if it's I, I do wonder if it's something the government was even thought of as it was devising the, the, the system for medical assistance in dying. Well, that's a, that's a, a great question. I'm Hunches that it probably wasn't, but um, but that's just nothing more than than a hunch. Although here are some very pessimistic observations. Uh, I I think you're right to to highlight this the question of the capacity of, of the Canadian healthcare system, and there is a tendency among the people who want to reflexively defend it as this great social achievement. They they just don't want to think about the limits against which the system is really running hard right now. And I suppose we could always say, well, we should just pour more money into it. But it's not like we're not pouring a lot of money into it already. That said, there is always going to be some kind of capacity constraint. Even in a better run system, we could have a better run system. I think both of us happen to think that a system with a, a greater element of private delivery and perhaps private funding as well would be better run. But it's just a matter of very basic economics. Resources are limited and human needs and wants are not. So there would always be capacity constraints. So the people who are against medically assisted suicide, they might say, well, and this proves that we need a categorical ban, no matter how harsh its consequences in some cases are, because this means that temptation to either tell somebody, well, why don't you think about this? Or the temptation for a person, perhaps especially in, in a context where there is more private care, to think, you know what, why am I spending more and more of the money I could be leaving, leaving to my kids? And, you know, why don't I? That will always be there. And so perhaps they will tell us we need to take this temptation away. But the fact that those capacity constraints exist, okay, we can, let's, let's say we, we prohibit assisted suicide. 
once again. We haven't resolved the capacity constraints, and we this just means that we have pushed those people to whom now we tell, no, no, don't you dare think about going before your time. You just you just have to suffer. And that's again, you're right to highlight the fact that we have more capacity constraints than perhaps we could have, but we're always going to have some. I, I well, I I think that's just uh, that's a fact of uh, providing a service in in today's world, uh, and the, the capacity constraints are always going to exist. Nobody should or can deny that. I don't think. But as you point out, I think then the problem becomes, well, if we're going to if, if the response to the problem of capacity, which exists in any case, is we simply can't allow medical assistance in dying. Well, then I think we have to balance the risks that come with providing medical assistance in dying situations like this with the uh, with, with the consequences of an outright ban. And then I think the problem really does become implementation. Because if we can conceive of a world in which our capacity problems were slightly improved, and we can conceive of a world in which the medical assistance and dying regime had proper safeguards, then there presumably would be no more capacity objection from the people who oppose medical assistance and dying. Then at that point, I think it just becomes a full-on assessment of whether or not the uh, a permissive regime of medical assistance and dying is better than one that is not permissive and what the consequences are. And I think that's, this is where I think the issue of human dignity and uh, what it means to be, what it means to have a dignified end of life, what that means to people. And it means very different things to different people. But all that to say, I, I think the the real target of the anti-made group, if I can put it that way, is really not the implementation. And it's really not capacity I think it's really just the practice of medical assistance in dying itself, and it comes on a particular conception of human dignity. I think that's that's my impression too. Uh, for at least for for a lot of people, I don't want to to just presume to speak about everyone, but that's that seems to be the case for for a lot of them. Uh, and so, in 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 this regard, so one thing that obviously comes to mind is that I think the the people who whose conception of, of human dignity is that we, we should not uh, hasten anyone's end, we shouldn't let people hasten their own end. And that's sincerely held and, and well meant. But I don't think that telling a suffering person that, you know, your your life, as unbearable as it might seem to you, your life has dignity. I'm not sure what that what that does to, to that suffering person. I can only hope that I will not be in that situation because I don't think that those pious words will mean much to me. Those the people who oppose medical assistance in dying will also say that, you know, we, we should be, well, it shouldn't be just pious words, we should be doing more. And that's, again, well meant. Perhaps some of them would vote for higher taxes, although I don't know uh, how many would. Perhaps we should be doing more, but again, there is there is always going to be, and, and whether we organize this publicly or privately or through charity, there is going to be cut-off lines. Some of the cases that have been described seem to genuinely be, as, as callous as it might seem to say, cases where the, the levels of public assistance that people would have required would have been very high. and. And perhaps they could be given those levels of assistance, but I, I think the resources of society are not unlimited and uh, private resources are not unlimited. And somebody will always be on the wrong side of that line of who gets help 
and and who can't because it's just impossible if we can help everyone and and so then again are we going to tell the person who is on the wrong side of the line wherever the line is are we telling them well you have to bear the cost in again excruciating suffering you have to bear the cost of our commitment to this conception of human dignity i'm not on board with that i'm not comfortable with that either and this is just going to be a difference of perspective and perhaps a difference of what it what it means to have control over one's life with others and again i don't i also don't want to speculate and generalize about what other people think of this issue but i i just i also cannot get on board with the idea that um somebody presumably from the state is going to tell a suffering person um what what conception of dignity they should accept about their own life and i think that's the and i i think it's much it's much easier to say that in the abstract and uh much harder to think of that when if you think in distinct cases about what sort of suffering people might have to go through because of this conception of human dignity that is being advanced i have no doubt that the individuals who hold this view do so in good faith and really do genuinely believe in this and that's why it's such a tough issue because on both sides, there are such high stakes and such strongly held opinions. To my mind at this stage, though, it seems like the problem, is, as I've said, is just in implementation and rule conception. The, pro- the attack should not be to the practice of medical assistance in dying unless it's um, unless the case can be made. And I haven't seen it been made that uh, medical assistance in dying cannot be implemented in Canada simply because of our capacity restrictions or some other local reason why we couldn't do it here but i haven't seen that case made yet and maybe you have but i not yet i've just seen these stories being used to attack the practice itself and i just i think the stories don't reveal a problem with the practice they reveal a problem with state capacity and our ability to handle this which are two different i view them as two separate problems so i I might have a slightly more tragic view of this i'm I'm genuinely not sure that those stories are, I am hopeful that things could be done better. I don't know that they could be eliminated entirely, these tragic and revolting stories. The problem, this is one of the further points I wanted to make. So which, so we have, we have this problem of, uh, as Bastia would say, uh, Bastia, French economist in the 19th century, great liberal thinker. So this, he described this issue of the seen and the unseen. We we see certain things and we are concerned by them, and then we don't see certain things, and so out of sight, out of mind, we we don't worry about the stuff we don't see as much. So. We used to see the stories of the people who are suffering because of their medical conditions and who are unable to obtain a dignified end to their lives. And those were the stories that attracted the public attention. That's the story that Carter, of course. And so that was the scene. And that brought about eventually a change through, through the courts in Canada. But let me return to this point. In a moment that brought those scene stories brought about a change and of course at the time when assisted suicide was illegal we did not see the obverse the stories that have been emerging now about the abuses of this practice because the practice didn't exist now the rule has flipped and now we see the abuse stories and we no longer see the kinds of tragic stories that we were able to see before. 
the rules change. If anything, my hope is that we don't rush to change the rules simply because what is seen and what is unseen has changed. We have to remember what things were like, and that's not a very long time ago, but we have to remember what things were like and why the rules changed. Because if we change the rules again, then we will be seeing those those other stories again. And I don't think that they will necessarily be any more bearable. Uh, so there, I said my view is, is more tragic because I think that we are, we are condemned as a, as a society to the tragedy either way. And I, I hope you're right, Mark, that the, the practice is not, in fact, irremediably flawed, that we could have more capacity, we could have better safeguards, but I'm not sure that how much those things will help. Uh, well, I just think that's an incredibly important point about uh, now that the regime has changed, what cases are now, we'll say, borderline cases or ones where errors have occurred, uh, and the look of those cases has now changed. And so that's why, you know, these stories, as I mentioned at the hop of this, it's, it's they're one-off stories. They're, they're, there's a number of them, but there's nothing approaching, and that's not to diminish this at all, uh, because as we both agree, it's it's a... For it to happen once is is bad and, and horrifying. But it's hard to make systemic changes or even changes to implementation and rules, as you point out, without getting a bit of a broader lay of the land of what what kind of how this practice is being implemented. Now, I gather there are publicly available statistics on medical assistance in dying, and I haven't looked at them. Um, but I, I do think, you know, if, if, if what comes after this is a reappraisal of the practice, either in its implementation or in whole, which I, I hope is not the case. Uh, I do hope that it's on the basis of not one or two stories, but you, you'd have to get a global picture of how this thing is being implemented in order to understand, as you say, what, what kind of, did we just trade one set of problems for another and, and will these problems always exist? I think, uh, and they may, they may always exist, uh, but it's important to get a global look at it. And right now, I think that's not, I'm not quite seeing that yet. At the, at the stage of looking at it globally, we're we're still very, I think we're focused on these cases and they're incredibly important. But uh, again, we do need to take a broad look at the practice if changes are going to be made to it. So I, I certainly do not disagree with that. That's, uh, I think that is very important. Uh, and, and perhaps that brings us to, uh, at least for, for my part, the last point, we, we were already going quite long, much longer than we intended for a test episode. <laughs> Uh, but the the last point is is about institutions. So I think that it's not unfair to say that in the critical commentary that has emerged in the recent weeks, there is a, a strong tendency to blame the Supreme Court, to blame the Carter decision. Uh, I have seen it called blithe, and I think this is a mistake. One thing that we have to remember is is what I mentioned in the introduction, that the current framework for medical assistance in dying is not directly a response to Carter. It's the result of a choice by the government and by parliament to take things further instead of defending its initial relatively more restrictive law. So if you want to blame somebody 
at this point, I think the blame has to go to the government, to parliament, rather than the Supreme Court. But the other point I wanted to, to mention is that in other countries, I'll just mention New Zealand because that's the one that I, I lived in, uh, when they went through a debate about assisted suicide, and now that was entirely, it was not a result of judicial decisions. The legal legal framework there is different, and their courts did not push Parliament uh, to change the law there. What happened was that a private member's uh, bill came up for debate in Parliament. So it wasn't a government proposal, it was one of the opposition members that had put forward a bill which had been given time in Parliament, which is something that doesn't happen very much in Canada or, for that matter, in the UK. Uh, but it does happen with uh, some regularity in New Zealand. And this bill was debated by a parliamentary commission that just before the, the pandemic, I think it was. And so they went on the road. They heard from thousands of people all over New Zealand, and they recommended that they, so they developed a proposal for a bill with the best safeguards that they uh, could come up with, but a bill to legalize medical assistance in dying. And then it was put to a referendum, which is something that uh, New Zealand also does with some regularity. And a majority of the, the voters in New Zealand support it. So this is not, so of course, Canada is not New Zealand. Perhaps the Canadian public feels differently about it. I'm, I'm not sure about that at all. Uh, but I think what is blithe is to say that medical assistance in dying is just this, this judicial imposition on, on people and that this is just this thing that the judicial elites made up. Ordinary people wouldn't support it. I, I don't think that's right. Perhaps we should have a process like New Zealand. I don't know about the referendum. I'm not necessarily a huge fan. I think the idea of a parliamentary commission that goes around the country and hears from as many people as it can would be a welcome one. But people should not presume that at the end of a process like that, we would end up with righteous popular opinion set against medical assistance in dying, and then we would have those heartless Supreme Court judges telling us, oh no, you plebs, you don't get to have it your way. Yeah, the, the institutional the institutional point is just very different. And this this is a problem, a Canadian problem. We have all sorts of institutional problems. Uh, we, we don't have a culture of uh, vigorous parliamentary debate. We have uh, frequent use of devices to, to shut off debate, omnibus legislation. These are these. It's not like these things are foreign to other jurisdictions, but the confluence of them in Canada has created, uh, I think, a very um, brittle parliamentary culture. And so, you, you know, I think you're at this stage, it's one thing to say the court was wrong in Carter, but it's now another thing to to continue to blame the court for for what has happened, because now it, it is an issue that is amenable to resolution in Parliament. It's it's one that our institution should now theoretically be able to craft a solution for. But because of the culture that we have in the parliamentary culture and the institutions and to a broader extent, our political culture, my guess is that it's less likely to happen here than it might in a, in a place like New Zealand, which sounds like it has a bit of a, a healthier parliamentary culture, although I'm not entirely sure. 
But all that to say, I think the institutional point is central here because that's going to dictate our ability to respond to whatever challenges we see with the with the medical assistance and dying regime. Our political institutions are perhaps not in uh, much better health than our medical institutions, and uh, that is not a very fearful note on which to end. Uh, but perhaps we will. We are grateful to any listeners who have stuck with us to this bitter end uh, in in every sense of, of the term. And uh, we may or may not be back for a next episode. Again, this is this is a test. This is not yet a commitment, but we do hope that you have enjoyed it. We hope that you will let us know what you think. And so we, we thank you for, for bearing with us. And we might talk to you next time. See you next time then.